Well, hello everybody, and welcome to the fifth episode. Fifth? The fifth episode of First Draft, the podcast that was having an identity crisis in its youth. Didn't want to be what it was, but has now come to accept itself for what it is, and is trying to find a place in the world. You may hear the breath of a northwesterly wind rustling, perhaps unpleasantly, across the microphone of my iPhone as I speak and I walk today. I can't do anything about that. I could do something about that. I could sit in, in my office where there is no wind and record this. But I think you'd lose the essentially bucolic nature of what this thing has become. Um, and I, I think it would only be half half the podcast for the lack of the sounds of the wilderness. If you'd like to know where I am, um, I'll tell you, I'm actually back where we started. This is the location. I'm up on the moor near where I live, uh, which was the location for the first episode that I recorded of this podcast. Those of you who are veterans and who've been paying attention and have a keen memory for detail may remember that this is a moor pockmarked with ancient anthills. It's that place. And I haven't just come out here out of a lack of imagination. It's just my favourite place. And wittering away on a windswept microphone to you lot is among my favourite things to do. It's not, the, it's not the top one, but it might sneak into the top five. Let's put it that way. The dog is gambling behind me. As we approach the moor today, we passed, as we always do, over a railway line, across a field cutting a footpath, and then uh, through an underpass which runs under, I think it's the A30. And in that underpass some years ago, because I've lived where I live for nearly six years and it's always been there, is a sort of spray-painted mural depicting the sort of animals, um, the fauna, that one might expect to see on the moor if one was lucky and paying attention. Includes a fox, cows, horses, the usual. There's nothing outrageous. There's not a gnu, for example nothing too exotic but they are quite nice spray painted graffiti type um, images of the wildlife however in in recent times and let's put this down to the pandemic uh, and the disaffection of the youth it has engendered they've they the the graffiti has itself been graffitied but to a poor standard someone's basically just written in a pen some swear words I was a bit confused by it because the cow had been given a speech bubble that said, Moo Moo, I am gay. Um, But next to it was a slogan that said, um, Trans women deserve the world. So maybe I was confused by that, but maybe my confusion, I thought, as I walked through, sprang from my assumption that the cow confessing cow homosexuality 
um, was being mocked by the graffiti artist. But actually, that probably speaks to uh, a prejudice that exists within me, having grown up, well, 40 years ago. Anyway, there's some shit but progressive graffiti. That's what I'm trying to tell you. The other thing I'm conscious of as I speak is that my dog appears to have run away. I don't know whether to stop this and chase after him or just let him be. Okay, so that, I suppose, is the scene set. Um, As usual, what I want to do with what remains of this half hour, 25 and a half minutes plus however long we run over, is um, to do as we always do, which is firstly to thank the subscribers to my Substack, the History Etc. Substack, for being subscribers and for supporting all this. To thank everybody else who's not a subscriber but might be one day for listening to this. And to answer some of the questions that were set when I posted a uh, a thread on Wednesday, because there was oh, there were so many of them. There were well over a hundred. I'm told by the people at Substack that's that's like with capital letters, good engagement. So you guys are good engagers. In fact, just to sort of brag a little bit, but mainly to thank you, History Etc. is at number seven in the literature charts on Substack, or it was when I looked at the beginning of this week. I don't know if there are more than seven literature Substacks, but even if there are, that feels like a lucky number. So we're doing well. Our numbers are growing. Anyway, thank you again for contributing questions. Uh, That's how this works. You contribute questions when I ask for them. I will do my best to answer those that I can. Read them out. Do shout-outs. Really whatever you want. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through a few of them now and see, see what fun this leads to. I want to give special thanks, actually, before I begin, to subscriber Liam, who I think is a teacher, because Liam suggested the topic of yesterday's subscriber-only post which was about uh, the women in history that exuded... Was that the verb that Liam used? I can't remember. I think it might have been. Uh, the most mum or mom energy. I picked my five from the Plantagenet era. Uh, but I'd love to hear what yours are too. So if, if you're interested in that, go on that post and leave me some comments. I read all the comments and, uh, and I enjoy them. So please let me know. Um, let's, let's see what people had to say this Wednesday and what you wanted to talk about. Jack got in early. This, is, this, this was on Wednesday morning when the post went live. Jack got in real early and said, show us your favourite example of medieval marginalia. That's the doodles, if you're not au fait with um, medieval manuscript technical terminology. Those are the doodles that tend to appear in the margins, hence marginalia, of manuscripts on vellum from the Middle Ages. Um, and you often see like BuzzFeed-type sites doing uh, clickbait compilations of the best bits of marginalia. Um, and they always have, as Jack correctly points out, uh, trumpet arse, which I think is someone uh, blowing a trumpet with their backside. Um, and there's always like a, a demented rabbit and like a, a weird old snail. That's... that's that's the sort of territory we're in. The very famous one, of course, in uh, Matthew Paris's 
uh, big chronicle of Paris himself, like creeping around on his hands and knees. Matthew Matthew Paris is uh, is a goat, frankly. Um, my favourite, I think. I'm wondering if it's a specific example or it's just the general. Uh, the it was the surprising nature of the, mar- the marginalia being there when I saw it was. Um, I went to Paris, gosh, it was pre-pandemic, so I'm going to say the summer of 2019, and I was making a show uh, for the History Channel about Templar relics. Some of you may have seen it. Anyway, I, I was doing the bits of that show that were actually about history, and I went to Paris with my beautiful, lovely film crew, or their beautiful, lovely film crew, really, and we filmed some stuff about Templar history and the fall of the Templars. And one of the things we were particularly privileged to see is, is and I took a photo of it and I've posted it on here before, I think, um, was the actual record of the confessions wheedled out of the Knights Templar in 1307, uh, after they'd all been arrested in October 1307. They'd been taken for questioning about whether they'd been committing perverted acts of blasphemy, heresy and sexual misconduct and their confessions mostly got out of them via torture or threat other forms of coercion uh, are enrolled on a a vast um, piece of uh, or or rather a vast roll of pieces of vellum sewn together. I mean it goes on for metres and metres and metres and metres and I'd read lots of it in uh, transcription before in you know in published books detailing the records of the Templars but I'd never seen the, the roll itself unrolled and it was just amazing how many like little heads and hands and squiggles and doodles were in the margins of what was really a, a pretty grisly and very serious document this was the thing that got the Templars wound up and many of their top brass um, killed or imprisoned and, and, and shamed. It, it ruined lives. And yet the scribe, writing it down, was kind of doodling away in the margins. So I think that, rather than the, um, the crazy rabbit or whatever, that's probably my favourite piece of marginalia. Not that I enjoy it per se, but I, uh, I was, it shocked and surprised me. Um, Michelle Holmes asks a good question. People talk about favourite monarchs, says Michelle Holmes. Favourite historical figures, blah, 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 blah. blah. Uh, what's your favourite place? I think I'm going to cut to the chase of a long question. Um, and is there, is, is there somewhere associated with an historic event or simply historically significant you'd love to go to but haven't yet? Um, well, there's lots and lots of them, but somewhere I've been thinking about um, recently, Michelle asked, what's the most significant place to you or your favourite and why? Somewhere that's been in my mind a lot recently um, are the beaches in Norman, the Normandy beaches, famous for the Utah... Sorry, it's for the Utah. I'm about to talk about Utah Beach. Famous for the D-Day landings... Uh, on the 6th of June, 1944. Um, and I'm, I'm very fond of those beaches and have been to those beaches more than once. Um, 
and I'm fond of them for two reasons. Firstly, because D-Day itself um, is such uh, an extraordinary event and such a pivotal event in uh, in modern history. Although modern is slipping into sort of middle middle ground history, as the last veterans of the Second World War uh, cease to be with us. So in and of themselves, the Norny Beaches are moving extraordinary. And you don't need much imagination um, to, to, to have some empathy with what happened there. Um, so I just, I think the Normandy Beaches are amazing. I think that whole part of Normandy is amazing. But for me, I've been living with those beaches in a way for quite a long time since I was last there and when I was last there I think was New Year 2018 to 2019 so New Year's Day 2019 but it could have been New Year's Day 2018 I can't really remember I think it was 19 in fact I know it was 19 and I went down there having hired a house in Normandy on New Year's Day and with a bunch of my friends who'd been staying with me and it was there that I sort of some we were talking about D-Day and we were on Omaha Beach and something twigged in my mind about this place not only having been the landing spot for uh, the D-Day for the D-Day landings but also having been the area where Edward III landed his troops an army of 15,000 um, on the 12th of July 1346 at the start of his invasion of France, um, the first phase of which led to the Battle of Cressy. Now, anyone who's heard me banging on about what I'm doing at the moment will know that I've just finished. In fact, I literally finished on Tuesday this week, was it? Was it? I think it was. Uh, my novel Essex Dogs. And it begins on what we now call Utah Beach with a platoon of people getting onto the beach, fighting their way off the beach and embarking on a campaign towards Cressy. So, because that story has been rattling around my old brain box for three years, really, and has been on my desk for a whole year as I've written it and is going to remain with me for some years to come as I write the rest of the trilogy, um, that historical location means quite a lot to me. Where do I want to go, Michelle? Man alive. There are so many places. I want to go back to Sicily. I really want to go back to Sicily. Um, haven't been to Sicily for quite a few years. And I've only been to around Taormina, which is amazing. Um, and the volcano is amazing. And very scenic and beautiful. But I want to go to the other side to Palermo. I think Sicily is one of the most fascinating places in the whole of Europe. So that's probably that's probably quite high on my list. And I also want to go to Ghent for some reason. I was supposed to be... Uh, Dutch listeners will know I was supposed to be on tour in um, the Netherlands and Belgium last month. And that got COVIDed. So Ghent had been on my itinerary. And then got took off my itinerary. So I was very disappointed about that. Just give you an update of where I'm strolling. I'm walking up river along the River Colne now, past a very, very large bramble bush, the size, well, the size of a tractor, although not the same shape. Um, brown, but with with some signs or hints of life. Um, there are little daisies 
popping their heads up in February, can you believe, on the grass below my feet. In the woods that I, the sort of small woods I walked through to get here, there were what I think were wood violets growing on the ground. It's, it's warm for February, that's what I'm trying to tell you. And the earth is responding. In fact, I was responding yesterday. It was so warm for February yesterday that I sat outside and barbecued four red mullets for my lunch while I ate two of them. That was weird. Um, so, there we go. What are we on to next? Um, let's have a little look. We had, oh, well, another Michelle. Michelle Marmelo Pedro says, I was reading about Simon de Montfort, the elder, and his bloodlust in Powers and Thrones. That's Simon de Montfort, father of Simon de Montfort, who opposed Henry III in the Barons' War of the 13th century. This is Simon de Montfort, the Crusader, who was on the Fourth Crusade uh, and sacked it off before they went and ruined Constantinople. Well, actually did go to the Holy Land, came back, and then was the leader of the Albigensian Crusade in the south of France, and a very brutal leader at that. Michel's been reading... Uh, he appears in Crus- my book Crusaders and Powers and Thrones, actually. Uh, Michel's been reading Powers and Thrones. Good on you. Who were, wonders Michel, the greatest mass murderers of medieval history? Who was more than happy to go on a killing spree or send someone out doing so? I'm going, to, I'm going to take the phrase mass murderers and define it quite broadly because, um, of course, you know, we have a, a distinction to make, don't we, between uh, warmongers who kill a lot of people um, and murderers. You know, is this defined as murder? What is defined as murder in the context of politics and how personally culpable do we hold political leaders, military leaders for murders, for uh, deaths caused under their command, which are not legitimate under the rules of war. Okay, so put all that aside. We're just going to go with who are the big killers. Tell you what, this has got to have been a History Channel programme already, hasn't it? It must have been. Um, in the Middle Ages, I, it's, it's hard to, it is hard to quantify. Um... Uh, it's probably Genghis Khan, I think. It's probably Genghis Khan. I think the, um, from what we know, the Mongol approach to conquest, which was to slaughter entire cities' populations, um, if the leaders of those cities flashed a single defiant eye in the direction of the Mongols, I think um, that policy carried out as it was at scale over many years in the 13th century um yeah that's you've got to have Genghis Khan pretty high up your list I think I think you do uh it's very hard for anyone else to compare I'm racking my brains as I as I speak but I don't think anyone from the Middle Ages really went about their business with that kind of enthusiastic um, ambition to rain death on anyone who they encountered. So yeah, let's let's go with uh, let's go with old Genghis or Chinggis as he liked to be known. I don't I don't want him to come back from the dead and uh, and massacre everybody in stains. 
that would be a disaster. So, where are we at now? We had, oh yeah, we had a, a question from Carline who asked again, where would you like to go? I had a lovely question from Peter, which I almost did a post on this week. I might do one on in some future weeks, which is, uh, did England have a Queen Matilda, a King Louis, or a Queen Jane? Should they be seen as official rulers? Matilda and Louis, says Peter, are seldom, if ever, counted among England's monarchs. Jane only had the gig for 13 days, but English Heritage lists her as a Queen Regnant on their tea towels. Well, that's a very important document. Uh, the English Heritage Tea Towel. Um, wh- what's going on? I'm summarising the rest of Peter's question. What, what the heck? What's going on here? I think what's going on is a lot of muddling around, frankly. Very hard to make a hard and fast uh, rule about this. As Peter's rightly pointed out, during the anarchy... The war that followed Henry I's death between King, St- uh, King Stephen, who was crowned King of England, and the Empress Matilda, uh, daughter of Henry I, who was briefly, as she proclaimed herself, Lady of the English. Um, there's some ambiguity about whether Matilda counts as a monarch or not. And you can say, well, she was, you know, she was not sort of formally crowned and maybe so uh, and then King Louis of course well Louis came over as a claimant to the English crown um, during the civil war that was the, in which the rebellious barons aimed to topple King John that's the war of Magna Carta why doesn't he make it on the list who else have we got who else did you mention Peter uh, Lady Jane Grey well not, not crowned um, not crowned I think, unless I've had some a total meltdown, um, so we don't count her. But yet we do almost always count Edward V, son of Edward, son of Edward IV. I'm picking my way across some quite slimy mud, which may account for my sudden lack of certainty in what I'm saying. Um, we count Edward V, don't we? And yet, of course, the whole deal with the princes in the tower was they were put there as Richard III repeatedly delayed their coronation. So I think it's just a big muddle. It's all a big muddle, isn't it? Um, But I think it would make an interesting piece. I think I'm going to do that quite soon. Thank you, Peter, for that. If I get round to that, um, doubly thank you, and I'll I'll be in touch uh, with you about it to let you know that your question got turned into an article. Um, because that's the name of the game, right? OK, Joseph Morris had a good question. Joseph Morris would like to hear more about Cornwall, the Cornish and their rebellions. Cornwall's often forgotten, says Joseph. I not forgotten by me. I'm going down to Cornwall in June for a week to go to a wedding. The wedding's not lasting a week, but I'm going to make a week of it. I haven't been to Cornwall for a very long time. But I think you're right. I think, I think Cornwall is overlooked somewhat. Uh, I think there's something super interesting about the historic links between Brittany, Cornwall and Wales and some broad linguistic similarities between those parts of the world. 
I think we could do something interesting on Cornwall. Maybe when I'm down in Cornwall. That's an idea, isn't it? I'll do something about Cornwall in Cornwall. Genius. Can you imagine me wandering about Cornwall as Cornish people stare at a sort of metro, sub-metropolitan sort of idiot gonk person wandering around talking into his iPhone, probably wearing some Ray-Bans. Imagine being a Cornish person seeing that, that dickhead. My God, that's going to be a sight for them. They don't even know what's coming, do they? Wow. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's, let me bring shame on myself and my family by doing that. Um, Monica P had a good question. Hey, Dan. Hey, Monica P. The medieval fair, naturally fair is spelt in an idiosyncratic way, F-A-I-R-E. Often you'll see a Y in place of the I in the spelling of fair when it's a, a cod medieval fair. Anyway, put that aside. Hey, says Monica P, the medieval fair's passing through my town this past weekend. It's a curious mix of tenses there, but I, uh, that's not important. Um, the question's important. I want to know who you'd go as. Friar Tuck, Saladin, Maid Marion, just some of the stock characters we see every year. Well, Monica P... Really, the only um, medieval costume I own is a Templar costume, um, which is is slathered in fake blood because for a good run of years, that was my go-to Halloween costume. I don't think I've got another... So I'd be going as a Templar. If, if you invited me at the last minute to your medieval fair... Um, I'd, I'd just sling the Templar gear on, probably, blood and all, and, 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 and come along. I wouldn't mind being a friar one of these days. Really, that's just a, a brown dressing gown and a, a piece of string, isn't it? I don't think I'm going all out and shaving a tonsure. Although, I don't know, maybe if it's a big fair, maybe I will. I, I said on the thread that I was going to just go as myself. That was an arrogant answer. I said, why not a big deal in the Middle Ages? But that got, that got pretty short shrift when I suggested it. So I apologise for being so crass and self-centred. Um, my goodness, there are so, so many questions. I did, as I said, I did try and answer in very brief, and fairly terse, not terse, that implies I was annoyed, um, laconic comments on the thread I tried to answer a few um, for example Dom Mack said he'd love to know a bit about Harold Hadrada pre-1066 and that got me thinking gosh I'd like to read slash write something about the Varangian Guard you know the Vikings who uh, made their way via rivers or sea routes or even overland um, to Constantinople to serve in the personal guard of uh, the Byzantine emperors that's that's a pretty cool subject. That's probably a pretty cool subject for a novel. Someone must have done that. They're bound to have done that, aren't they? Uh, Brody Marshall asked a question about Stonehenge. Um, I did... Uh, subscribers may... And even non-subscribers may remember that last week, was it? Or was it two weeks ago? There was a Monday free post about Stonehenge. Um, and Brody was, was asking this, this question in the context of nostalgia... Brody said, what did medieval people think about Stonehenge? You know, this, this thing that was 
ancient even by the time of the, the sort of high middle ages we're much closer in time to medieval people than medieval people were to the neolithic peoples that built and, and rearranged and rebuilt stonehenge what do they think of it well i thought the best i think i think the the most obvious place to go to answer that question and again you can you can check out a bit more of this in the post i did um if you if you go through the archive on the substack um the best answer is if you go to geoffrey of monmouth geoffrey of monmouth pretty clear how stonehenge had got there he said that um king arthur's uncle basically um had i'm now by the way i'm off the moor and i'm walking down the side of the gigantic reservoir i've told you about once before um I had to do a bit of ducking and diving under some tape. If you if you recall, episode one of this podcast uh, was interrupted when I talked to some guys making uh, a, a plastic boardwalk over a particularly muddy stretch of footpath. Well, they're still only half done with that. That's a long time they've been at that. Um, anyway, I did, they're not there, which might explain why it's taking so long um and i had a duck under their red and white do not do not trespass tape um so that's why i'm a little i've been up and down and maybe making some weird noises or maybe not maybe you wouldn't have realized if i hadn't just told you what were we talking about oh yes jeffrey of monmouth how he explained stonehenge he said king arthur's uncle uh big battle I wanted to commemorate his war dead and uh, he was asking around how am I going to do this and Merlin the magician said to him boss I've got an idea uh, over in Ireland there some big ass stones uh, called the giant's ring <coughs> excuse me he said uh, those stones were brought there by giants originally from Africa go nick them um, so King Arthur's uncle said you know what that's genius and off he went with boats and his men to nick the giant's ring from Ireland on top of a mountain that, legendary mountain and legendary I mean legendary in that it doesn't really exist off they pop to Ireland and they get there and they fight the Irish alas poor Irish they win but when it comes to moving a giant ring of sarsen pillars, they find they're not up to the task. So they have to call for Merlin again. Merlin just does some, some sick magic. And just, just him, just Merlin, uh, with the sick magic, he gets all the stones, puts them on a boat, brings them over to Salisbury Plain. Now, as an aside... Uh, we could do with Merlin to fix the plastic boardwalk here over the particularly muddy stretch of footpath. Just one one wave of his wand. Um, that would be done instantly. If you know Merlin, if, if Merlin, if you're subscribing to History Etc, uh, get in touch, man. I've got, I've got a job for you. All right. I think we've got time for one more. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry to everybody I haven't got around to. Can I just reiterate, all you lovely people listening, uh, you're, you're blessed and wonderful. All you subscribers who've contributed potential questions for this, you are double blessed and double wonderful. Um, 
thank you so so much uh, and I'm only sorry that I, I haven't managed to read out more of these questions I've certainly enjoyed reading them and I do read every single one so uh, please keep please keep pitching in and I'll try and get to everybody at some point over the coming weeks and months Gabby Jones says does pineapple belong on pizza St- do you know what stick wherever you want on there that's my feeling the older I get put what you want on your pizza if you want a goddamn it fried English breakfast on your pizza, put it on your pizza. If you want a fried egg on your pizza, put it on your pizza. If you want an infinite stack of pizzas, like the turtles in that philosophical visual analogy, stacked one on top of the other, pizza upon pizza, a repeating series out to infinity, you do that. I don't recommend you ring up Papa John's or Domino's and order that because they will become confused and irate. I'm banned, by the way, from Papa John's uh, Twitter account over a, a disagreement many years ago. They don't seem to have forgotten it, nor apparently have I. I didn't ask for an infinite pizza stack. Let me just say that. I, th- I think I just got chippy because they were late. Anyway, put pineapple on the pizza, do what you want. Um, and then John Street we had John Street here's a good question I might finish with this question because we're running over Um, uh, I do want to shout out Liam again Liam by the way Liam um, you win a signed copy of Powers and Thrones so if you're listening to this can you send me an email Uh, it's danjones at substack.com you can all feel free to use that but this is specifically for Liam um, and claim your free, but I'll need to know where to send it, man. Thank you for your question, uh, which was all about uh, mum energy in the Middle Ages, or in history in general. But I'm going to finish with John Street. As John Street asked a good question, which was, were war and or rebellion the defining features of medieval society? Now, I think John Street asked that question because, like a good parent... John Street was helping out a child with an assignment. I think that's right, yes. Because he asked the question twice. Such a good question, he asked it twice. It's an A-level history question that John Street's daughter uh, has been asked to answer. And so I answered it a little bit on the thread, and I, I want to I go over it again one time. Were war and rebellion defining features of medieval society? It's a good question, because like any... And, and here's a tip for all your students... Uh, old and young listening to this usually when someone asks a question like that they're, say, they're not just asking you a question outright they're setting a little test for you which is to say have you really thought about the terms of this question that's often what they do at A-level as I recall many years since I did my A-levels but whatever because before you can answer the question, were war and rebellion defining features of medieval society? You need to unpick its terms, right? That's, that's the first rule of answering any um, academic essay question. And so we've got to think about, first of all, well, what is medieval society? I mean, fundamentally, before you even do that, what are the Middle Ages? Where, what does this word medieval mean? Um, and here we come into, really, the first... The introduction, the first paragraph of Powers and Thrones, a book from last year. 
which says, why, what do we mean by the Middle Ages? Well, we mean something quite specific. What we mean by the Middle Ages is, was laid down by John Fox in the 1560s, right? Acts and Monuments, his big history of um, the Protestant martyrs. Well, Fox sort of came up with the idea of the Middle Ages. He said there was a primitive time, by which he meant the pagan classical world. He said there's our, our modern age, by which he meant everything after the Reformation. He said, and there's the Middle Age, which is the bit in the middle. Okay? So, roughly speaking, that's from um, the 4th century and, and, and in the early 5th century, the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, all the way up to the Reformation. That's the Middle Ages. So... First, you know, the first place that leads you to... So what we're saying is the Middle Ages is a Christian ecclesiastical term, mainly pertains to Western Europe. Okay, well, if we're being really reductive about this, we say no, war and rebellion are not the defining features of medieval society because they're not even the defining features of the Middle Ages. The defining feature of the Middle Ages is a period of the dominance of Christianity in Western Europe, but specifically Christianity under the popes and with the, uh, the, the rising and latterly waning power of Rome. So, you could, uh, you could stop your answer right there, or you could, you could be reasonable and say, so, you know, f- first and foremost, let's get, let's get this straight. The, def- the, the absolutely defining thing in the concept of the Middle Ages is religion. But, of course, the Middle Ages have a reputation as being a particularly bellicose time. People are always charging around fighting each other. Well, then I would probably go to counterexamples and say, you think the Middle Ages was uh, warry? Let me introduce you to the Roman Empire that directly preceded it. Or the world of the Greeks. You know, what are the, what are the Greeks... What did the, what are the, what's the great history, you know, legendary history of the Greeks is the Iliad. It's a story about war. So the Greeks, you know, we're talking Bronze Age here, long before the Middle Ages. In a sense, war defined that society. Now, it's not exclusive. Just because it defined Greek society doesn't mean it can't define the Middle Ages. But what about the Romans? Well, one of the, what were the reasons for Rome's dominance in its heyday of the late Republic and early Empire? Massive military spending. Military spending on a scale that dwarfs even the modern United States. So, there we have another. What do we say about the 20th century? Telling me the 20th century won't be defined by war when it has two, literally two world wars in one century and a cold war of uh, balanced, apocalyptic, nuclear uh, weapons held by two mutually hostile superpowers. Come on. The definition of the 20th century is war. And then the more you go, you go through counterexamples, the more you see that actually war, brackets and rebellion, um, cannot really define the Middle Ages because you, could, you find them to at least an equal extent in many, many, so many other different historical periods that it becomes meaningless to peg them to the Middle Ages. And then I suppose you could dig into what are the unique features, you know, to what extent was the Middle Ages um, a militarised society? Yeah, okay. I suppose... Listen to that. 
think that's a little, yes, there's a little, few little parakeets flying above my head. Well, what was I talking about? I was wanking on, wasn't I, about the Middle Ages, as usual. Uh, the answer's no. <laughs> but you've got to explain it a bit more. Tell your daughter, you've got to explain it a bit more. But I think you've got to start there. So, we've gone egregiously over length now. It's now 40 minutes. If I had an editor or any editing software, or I really cared, I'd, I'd send this off and go, hey, let's cut five minutes out of this. It's too long. But you know what? There's a reason this is called First Draft. Because it's rough and ready. It's, what is that? What? It's raw like sushi, to quote Nina Cherry. Um, however, it is also over. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and do another one next week, but I'm travelling next week a little bit. That might mean we get around to this. might mean I have a hiatus for a week. It might mean you get an episode from somewhere truly exotic who knows who knows um thank you once more subscribers anyone who wants to join in this post questions uh, read exclusive articles i'm gonna do some more book giveaways over the next few weeks anyone who wants some of that subscribe please subscribe it keeps us all going everyone who does subscribe you have my eternal love and thanks there's no middle ground is there i can't i, I can't thank the people in the middle who else shall i thank I think I'll thank myself. Thank you, Dan. You've done an amazing job, and your dog came back. You bloody great hero.